All right. Happy Sabbath, church. Have you been blessed thus far? Amen. That was a real blessing. Thank you, ladies, for that and all that has come before. Well, we continue now in our series in the book of Colossians. Jesus welcomes you and we welcome you, whether you're a visitor or member, whether you're here or online. We ask that God's richest blessings will be upon you today as his word goes forth. Again, we're in Paul's letter to Laodicea, we've called it. If you remember, there are seven churches in the book of Revelation, and what's the last one called? Laodicea, right? And in the last part of this book of Colossians, Paul says, make sure that this letter is read to Laodicea and that the letter from Laodicea is read to Colossae. And so we've called this Paul's letter to Laodicea because it definitely has connection in that way. The book of Colossians, this sermon in particular, is called Complete in All the Will of God. And Paul says in this passage to put on love. Above all things, put on charity or put on love and be ye thankful. I hope you're thankful today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we turn to your holy word now, we ask your spirit to especially guide our hearts and minds to this holy book. Please, Lord, may the pages of your word come alive to our hearts as we study today. And Lord, I also want to mention Ashley Lowell's dad who passed away recently and also Sam Ripley and also Mary Singer who will be having surgery coming up soon. We just ask for your peace that passes understanding. You're the God of all comfort, Lord. We've lost um, several in this church recently and they're always difficult. But Lord, you're always there comforting and guiding. Thank you for being that kind of a God and guide now in your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just a quick review, and then we get into the word for today. We looked last week at the work of God, the warning to man, and the walk of man. And we noticed how in the Pauline epistles, you have generally the first part is the work of God. And then the last half is the walk of man. Or you could put it this way. The first half is the gospel, and the second half is the fruit of the gospel. Now, obviously, you'll find passages in both of those parts that are not that, but that's the general tenor of Paul's epistles. Uh, we also noticed in the book of Colossians, there is a warning to man of the false teachings that were so prevalent in Paul's day, some of which are still prevalent in our day, maybe even more so in our day. And so God says, beware of those things. Believe the work of God. Beware in regard to the warning to man and walk of man. As to the walk of man, we are to be what God has called us to be. We also looked at these five terms, biblical terms. They're different sort of shades of the subject of salvation. <clears throat> and we saw that justification was one, and that is where the sinner is the accused. 
but he's declared righteous. We saw that reconciliation is where the sinner is an enemy and becomes a friend. Peace is made through the gospel. We saw forgiveness where the sinner is a debtor and the debt is paid and forgotten. We saw redemption where the sinner is a slave and is granted freedom by ransom. And then we saw sonship. The sinner is a stranger and is made a son. So we saw all these different ways to look at the message of salvation. And we saw them in the light of 2 Corinthians 1.10, which speaks of deliverance in three phases, right? We have been delivered, we are being delivered, and we will be delivered. And all these we saw had those uh, connotations to them or meanings also. So now I did promise we would look at Colossians 2 because that is a passage that I skipped. I did cover it somewhat, but if you'll go there now, Colossians chapter 2, that is where we will start. And it's such a powerful passage. I really wanted to save it for the end of the sermon, but I couldn't because it was in chapter 2 and I need to get all the way to chapter 4. Don't worry, we won't be going through all the verses. But we'll uh, look at a large majority of them. Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to skip back to verse 10 and then read uh, up through verse 13 at this point. So follow along with me. I have the King James this morning. It says this, And ye are complete in him that is in Christ which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, remember, the Jews would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision and refer to themselves as the circumcision. So there's a lot of meaning going on here as Paul is sharing. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So you are buried with him You have risen with him. These are things that God is calling us that we already are as believers in Christ. Verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him? Again, that's with Christ, having forgiven you a few of your trespasses. Did I get it right? Come on now all of your trespasses, right? Not a few. So you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, he's given you life. He's quickened you together with him, that is with Christ, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Key, key point. And this is the context for the verses to come. So often in the Bible, if we just look at the context of where the verses are and where they came from, we'd have the answer right there. We wouldn't have to even go to another text to understand the passage. So here, 
the Bible talks about the forgiveness of all our sins. And I want to illustrate again the gospel, sort of the two parts, the gospel and the fruit of the gospel in a little uh, different way. And I keep coming back to this because Paul keeps coming back to this. And we must come back to this. So this time I want to look at it in terms of indicatives and imperatives. Now, an indicative is a statement of fact. So what were the indicatives in, let's just go back to verse 12. You have been buried with him in baptism. He's not asking you your opinion. This is an indicative. This is a statement of fact. Verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened? He has made you alive. Another indicative. He's not, again, it's not uh, asking your opinion. These are things that you are as a Christian. And it's from who we are as a Christian that we do as a Christian. Does that make sense? It's from who we are that we do. I steal this illustration from another pastor, but they say there's no copyrights on anything in the ministry, so everything goes. Uh, Another minister spoke of this, and he said there are too many animals in his backyard, but there's chipmunks and birds. So he was going to use those, chipmunks and birds. You know a little bit about birds, don't you, John? Yeah. So anyway, I could have had you, I thought about having you bring your bird and having it fly around, but no, 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 this may not work. So I uh, took a second uh, rain check on that. Um, However, So think about if I, if I spoke perfect chipmunkies, right? And I went to the chipmunk and said, chipmunk, fly. Would I have much success? Probably not, right? Why not? Well, he doesn't have any wings, right? <laughs> He's not prepared to fly. But what about if I go to the bird and say, fly? Would I have better success? Yes, I would. Why? He's a bird. He's got wings, right? You are risen in Christ. Since you have been resurrected, chapter 3 says, since you have been quickened, your doing flows from who you are as a Christian. Amen? All God's biddings are his enablings. He doesn't ask you to, he doesn't ask a chipmunk to fly, right? He asks a bird to fly. He gives you wings to do the very things that he's asking you to do. Super important. If you got nothing else, if you got this concept, you'll you'll just get so much out of the Pauline epistles. So I hope you did get that. But this verse 13 gives us the context for verses 14 through 16 which say, blotting out, let's go back to verse 13 to again get that context, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive or quickened together with him? So it's if in Christ you've been made alive again, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, we need to understand 
what this handwriting of ordinances was. So we already know it's in the context of all your sins being forgiven. So what we're actually looking at here is our sins, our broken promises and pledges to God, our debt to God, sort of a written contract that we've written, right? And sometimes we, we do these, right? We pass out these IOUs. That's really what this is talking about, this handwriting of ordinances that was against us, this, this IOU, our debt to God, our sins, our trespasses, like the verse just before said, right? That's what he's nailing to the cross. But notice he just doesn't, he doesn't just nail it to the cross. He does two things to this handwriting. Let's look at it again. Look at it in that verse. First it says he does what to the handwriting of ordinances? Look in your Bibles. What does it say? Takes it out of the way or blots it out, right? I mean, we have this, this um, what do you call it? Uh, white out or erase, white erase, you know, that right? Or think of a blackboard, right? You wipe it away. But he doesn't just wipe it away as if that's not enough, right? <laughs> if he's wiped it away, that should be enough, right? He's given us this new garment. He's wiped it away. But no, he does something further with us sins just to make sure that you get the point. And this, <clears throat> I got to tell you a funny story about this. This lays next to my daughter Alexia's bed. And I, I showed her a picture of this. I said, hey, I'm using your nail for an illustration. She said, put my weapon back. So this is her weapon. This is next to her bed. She's a really pretty hard sleeper, so I don't think you'll have any problems if whatever. But uh, anyway, <laughs> this, is, this is her weapon. But I'm, of course, using it here as an illustration to a point because not only does God blot out those sins, those IOUs, those broken promises and pledges that are like ropes of sand, all that old covenant stuff, plus the sins that it led to. But he does something more, right? He takes it and he nails it to the cross. So anytime you think of those hands outstretched in love for you that are bleeding, think about that nail having your sins on it, amen? All your IOUs, all your trespasses. Not only has he wiped it out, but now he's nailing it to the cross just so you know <laughs> that it's completely taken care of, amen? That's what God does with our sins. And it reminds me of what it says in Hebrews chapter 6, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, he verified or ratified his promise or his covenant. Go back with me to, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 15 and take a look at this because Hebrews 6 is speaking about an event back in Genesis. So go to Genesis 15. Because this is where the everlasting covenant came in. And God said, I will be your reward, right? We're not looking for a reward. God says, I am your reward, and I will be your shield, your exceeding great reward and your shield. 
15, verse 1. And Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, the one born in mine house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one is not your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards the heavens. See if you can count the stars and number them. And he said unto him, So shall your seed be. So God has promised. Now, his promise should be enough, shouldn't it? I would think so. If God promises, it's going to happen. And Abraham believed God. Verse 6, very key point. Believed God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord which brought you out of Ur, out of the Chaldees, to give you this land to inherit it. Well, Abraham wanted more. Now, remember, he's the father of the faithful, (laughs) by the way. But he wanted more here. He said, what? I I know you're saying you're going to do this, Lord. But how will you ratify this covenant? How will you you make sure? Verse 8. Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And the Lord said to him, take several different animals. Looks like four to be exact, right? And he said, take a heifer, take a cow, three years old, she-goat, three years old, a ram of three years old. Actually, that's five, isn't it? A turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now, so to ratify covenants in the Old Testament, they would usually just use one of these animals, right? And they would split the animal down the middle. And the two halves would fall to the side. And then the person would walk through the two halves of the animal. Now, what the person was saying was, if I don't fulfill my promise, let me be like this animal. That was what it was saying. That was the, uh, the imagery. God takes all of these animals and puts them together. Now, he's already promised, right? It should be enough. You should believe just for the promise. You shouldn't have to have an oath on top of the promise. But that's what God does for Abraham. He takes all these animals. And, of course, Abraham asks, it takes a while. Abraham makes makes sure that the birds don't come in and swoop them away. Verse 11. Verse 12, great darkness. Uh, a, A deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Skip down to verse 16. Or 17, and it came to pass that when the sun was down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. It's as if God and Christ together walked hand in hand through those pieces to guarantee the promise that he'd already made. And so today God does two things to guarantee to you that there is an anchor to your soul, sure and steadfast. That's what Hebrews 6 says. He not only wipes it out, right? I think it's the other side, but then he nails them to the cross. 
Now this is crucial to everything else that Paul's going to share in this epistle. Because then he's going to tell you, so that's how you've been forgiven, right? We just illustrated. Now how are you to treat others? How are you to forgive others? You've just been forgiven in this way. How are you to forgive others? In the same way, right? In the same way that Christ has forgiven you. That affects absolutely everything. And that's what Paul goes through as he lists how employees are supposed to act to their employers. You don't work for Denso. You don't work for Kellogg. Whoever you work for, you work for who? Ultimately, the Lord, right? Husbands and wives. If you've been, if your spouse is also a believer in Christ, how have they been forgiven? Kind of that same way. So for you to hold a grudge against somebody else, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> right? You're saying, oh yeah, yeah, I, I like that for me, but I'm not so sure I like that for you. No, no. <laughs> this is the basis for how we live, right? And how we forgive and how we love, put on charity above all things. Ah, it's crucial. All right, we've got to continue. Now I've got two Bibles here. And uh, go back to Colossians chapter two, because I want to finish up this part of the passage. And we've got just a little more. Well, we've got a lot more that I'd like to cover, but a little more that I will cover. Colossians chapter 2, friends, you have been forgiven. All of your trespasses have been nailed. They've been wiped out and nailed to the cross. As if one way of taking care of them wasn't enough, God said, I want you to be sure about this because this is going to now affect how you live and how you treat others. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, nailing it to the cross, that which was contrary to us. And having spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing in it. And I love what <clears throat> Spurgeon said about that verse said this, exhibiting them as prisoners. Now, when it's talking about these principalities and powers, we're talking about the angelic different levels of, uh, by the way, the devil is organized, okay? <laughs> and there are different levels of evil angels and so forth. That's what he's talking about. They've been put to shame. They've been triumphed over. Christ is victor, amen? There are powers that are out there, but our God is stronger than them. Spurgeon put it this way, exhibiting them as his prisoners in a triumphal procession as the victorious Roman generals did when they returned from war. His cross was his triumph. Then he led captivity captive. What more do you want? Spurgeon says, your enemy is vanquished. Your sins blotted out. Your death changed to life, your necessities all supplied. Will you not stay at home with Christ? Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? 
Canst thou have a better lover than thy Lord, a dear husband than thy heavenly bridegroom? Oh, love the Lord, you his saints, cling to him, make much of him. Let him be all in all to you. The Lord Jesus has done everything for his people, fought their battle, won their victory, and on their behalf celebrated the triumph in the streets of heaven, leading captivity captive. What more then do we want? Surely Christ is enough for us. Come on and say amen if Christ is enough for you today. And that's the whole point of Colossians. We are complete in him. Christ is enough. He made a show of them, principalities and powers, openly triumphing over them, those powers, in it, that is in the cross and his great sacrifice. Then going to verse 16, therefore let no man, or let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink. Now these were involved in the different festivals or feasts or fasts that the Jews kept that would actually cause a, a difference between Jew and Gentile. Let no man judge you according to these things in respect to a holy day or the new moons or the Sabbath days, which is plural. Again, not speaking about the Sabbath at the that's in the Decalogue that Jesus kept, that the disciples kept. Oh, no, 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 that's not separating anyone. This is talking about the ceremonial Sabbaths. Like I said, the fasts, the feasts, the festivals, whether they're just during a day or whether they're longer during a month, the new moons, or whether they're quarterly, don't let anyone judge you according to any of those, which are only a shadow of the things to come but the body is of Christ. Now, I'll give you another proof why I know this isn't talking about the seventh day Sabbath, which is part of the Decalogue. Obviously, Jesus kept it, and obviously the disciples kept it. But all through, if you look at the book of Acts, I'd love to take you through the book of Acts from chapter 13, verse 42 onward, then to chapter 14, then to chapter 16, then to chapter 18. And Paul's just going all over the place. He's in Corinth. He's in Philippi. He's in all these different uh, cities. And what is he doing? He's keeping the Sabbath, right? Everywhere. So if he was then going to write to the Colossians and say, by the way, that's nailed to the cross, the Colossians would be doing this, right? They'd be scratching their head saying, uh, explain this to me, um, Paul. <laughs> you kept the Sabbath everywhere you went, and now you're saying it was done away with and done away with at the cross? Well, the cross was before the book of Acts. So what in the world is going on, right? They would have had some serious misconceptions, but of course they didn't because that wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about days, months, years, festivals. A key text that compares to this, especially for you that study this, Bible workers and others that want to share it with others, is Galatians 4.10, a perfect match to this. And here's what Albert Barnes said about days when it is spoken of there. I'm not going to turn to it, but you can write it down, <clears throat> look at it later. Albert Barnes was a Presbyterian, raised Methodist. Uh, he was back in the 1830s, um, whoa, a uh, tremendous 
uh, expositor of scriptures and has several commentaries out there. Here's what he said about days. Now he's referring to Galatians. The days here referred to are doubtless the days of the Jewish festivals. They had numerous days of such observances. And in addition to those specified in the Old Testament, they added many more. Days of commemorative of the destruction and rebuilding of the temple, other important events in their history. And if you look at, oh, where was it in Zechariah? I'm dropping the chapter right now. Around chapter eight somewhere, you have the different fasts, right? And Zechariah says, no, turn your fasts into feasts. But they, some of these very fasts uh, that were daily fasts that they just added on were mentioned there. He says this, he goes on, it is not a fair interpretation of this to suppose that the apostle refers to the Sabbath, properly so called, for this was a part of the Decalogue and was observed by the Savior himself and by the apostles also. Now, this is a Presbyterian saying this. It is a fair interpretation to apply it to all those days which are not commanded to be kept holy in the scriptures. And hence, the passage is as applicable to the observance of saints' days and days in honor of particular events in sacred history as to the days observed by the Galatians. There is as real servitude in the observance of these numerous festivals and fasts in the papal communion and in some Protestant churches as there was in the observance in the Jewish ecclesiastical calendar. So as it was back then, there is some of that still goes on today. And for anything else I can see, Barnes says, such observances are inconsistent now with the freedom of the gospel as they were in the time of Paul. We should observe as seasons of holy time what it can be proved God has commanded us and no more. Amen? And so that is what is going on in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Skipping down now to chapter three, as we are gonna roll through just a little bit of this and then into chapter four. Again, we have this indicative, if you then be risen with Christ. Really, it should say since. Chapter three, verse one of Colossians I'm at now. Since you then are risen with Christ. So Christ is saying, you're already risen, now live this way. You're a bird, fly. For you, verse three says, for you are dead. Now that's interesting. If I'm dead, then he, two verses later, he says, mortify your, your members. Wait a minute. If I'm already dead, why am I mortifying? <laughs> right? That goes back to those different phases we talked about, right? In Christ, you're dead. But Paul said, I die how often? Daily, right? So there's a past tense that you are dead, but you need to be dead today to sin. Amen. That's what Christ has come to give us the victory for. If the gospel doesn't change our lives, how much of a gospel really is it? Amen? I didn't hear one amen. Did the gospel come to change our lives? Yes, it did, right? To give us victory, not in and of ourselves, but from Christ to change us from the inside out. Verse three, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's just a statement of fact for the believer. 
When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you also shall appear with him in glory. We talked about what to put off, right? The old garment that needs to be put off. We covered that last week. We're going to look a little bit at what we need to put on. And that starts in verse 12 of chapter 3. Right? So you put off all this other stuff. <clears throat> Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. Back from verse 8. Filthy communication out of your mouth. Whether it's passive aggressive or just straight up aggressive, that has no place in the life of the Christian. Amen? No place in the life of the Christian. You say, well, it might not, Pastor, but it kind of does still have a place <laughs> in my heart. Well, then we need to go back to remembering who we are. Amen? You're a bird. Fly away from that stuff. He's given you a new garment. You don't live in that other address anymore. He's given you a new address. Verse 12. Put on, therefore. So you put these other things off. Now you put on some things. And this kind of describes that new white, clean garment. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Er, stop right there. Don't just put on, but put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's who you are, right? It's going back to who you are, right? You're a bird. You're holy and beloved. You are elect. And so God is trusting you in a sense, right? He's trusting, he's entrusted you with some things and says, now use those things for my glory. You are elect to do the following. Put on, therefore, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Right? <laughs> How did Christ forgive you again? Remember, that's the measure of, of us forgiving others. Wow. We need help to do that, do we not? <laughs> we do. We do need help. We need the Holy Spirit to give us that power to have that level of forgiveness. Because some of y'all have been through some things, I know. And it's not easy. In fact, I don't think it's possible. It's got to be Christ in you making it happen. That kind of level of forgiveness. Live your life in thankfulness. Verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. We talked last meet about the little meter. There's a little meter on your bulletin that says where our renovation project is. It's above 350 now. But what about the meter on your heart regarding thanksgiving? Where, where is thankfulness in your heart? Is it, is it full? I pray that it is. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So there's teaching and admonishing in the psalms and hymns, interesting, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to God. 
That's what song should be all about, amen? Singing with grace in our hearts and whatsoever you do, sort of a summary, verse 17, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And then some very, very practical stuff. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Forgive them as you have been forgiven. Children. So, husbands, wives, children now. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, again, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Employees, that is, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. For whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So again, as employees, if we are working with an eye single to God, now that doesn't mean we let our employer get away with murder, right? But, but our focus is on Christ and we're serving in that way. There's going to be a lot of happy employers around, amen? And they might even ask you, you know, I don't even treat you that well and you're working that well for me. What's, what exactly is going on? And then you'll have a chance to share your love for Christ. But not just... Um, is there a message here to employees or servants, but also to employers? And that is masters, chapter four, verse one. Masters, employers, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So it goes back to how the master has treated you. That's how you are to treat others. And then Paul says how to pray, how to continue in prayer. So everything from how to husband and wives deal with each other, employees, employers, spouses, children. It's all in here and all this is in response. All these are imperatives. There are things God calls us to do because of who we are. You're a bird, fly. Verse two of chapter four says continue in prayer, be persistent in prayer, and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So we see persistence or alertness or vigilance. There's something in the police world that sometimes happens after um, a very trying situation. It's possible that a police officer might be hyper vigilant, right? I mean, any little thing, you know, he's, he's looking around. Uh, that's what we learn in the quote-unquote counseling, the emotional uh, sessions that we have uh, with the police officers after um, the gun's been discharged and possibly a life's been taken. There's sometimes hyper-vigilance. Paul's telling us here, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be persistent. Be vigilant. Be pleased. Be thankful with the same about prayer. Verse 3 with all praying also for us that God would open for us a door of utterance or give us an opportunity to speak the mystery of Christ, which also I am in bonds, Paul says, 
remember where he wrote this from, that I may make it manifest how I ought to walk. Verse 5, and we close there. This is walk in wisdom, actually 5 and 6, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, that is without the household of Christ, without Christ. Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time that is making every second count, right? The Lord is coming soon. We need to make every second count, whether it's at your work, someone that doesn't know Christ, um, whether it's in the grocery store, wherever it is, we need to be about our Father's business, amen? Redeeming the time. There's not much time left. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. And when it says answer every man, that presupposes something, doesn't it? If you're answering, what does that presuppose? That someone's asking. (laughs) And so may your lives be something that would cause someone to ask about your Jesus. And then you can glorify him. Redeeming the time as we close, says Paul, story to close, suppose that a wealthy man were to give someone 1440 a day. Uh, so there's $1,440 a day to spend. Okay, so here's the deal. You get that to spend, but you have to spend it. You can't save it. Some of y'all are savers, can't do it. The gift did not allow him to save it, still less to hoard it. At the end of each day, what was not spent, lost. You don't get it at all. That's the deal. The same sum would arrive every day. Now, some of you are saying, I'll, I'll take that deal. <laughs> then an accounting would be made of what the recipient had done with the sum. 1440 rule, I call it. There it was, 1440 a day to spend, squander, use in buying things for yourself or in helping others, or to be wasted on trifles or invested for eternity. Every day... Now, here's where it flips, right? Every day, God gives us 1,440 minutes to be spent by us and us alone. You have to spend it. You can't save some up for tomorrow. We have none of yesterday's time left over for today. All of these precious minutes are ours, gift from God However, when life is over, there will be a strict accounting of what we have done with our time. We as Christians will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. The unsaved will render their account at the great white throne judgment. But an accounting will be made. Now, as we close, in the light of the incomparable imperatives of God, in the light of the work of God, in the light of the promises of the gospel, in the light of what we have and what we have become in Christ, all that we have in him. Since you are dead, Paul says, since you are risen, now walk this way. Treat your wife or husband this way, Paul says. Treat your bosses or employees this way. Forgive others this way. Pray this way. Speak this way. Redeem the time with unbelievers this way. And above all things, 
Put on love. You are complete in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your holy word today. It's so practical. It enters absolutely every phase of our life. And Lord, there are things that are imperative. There are things that we must do. But Lord, first we must understand who we are in you. And Lord, when we understand why would we want to do anything else? Because Lord, you're the one who walks with us and talks with us and tells us that we are your own. Oh Lord, during that time, that 1440 that we get a day, may we make sure to spend that sweet time with you. Sometimes we can get so busy with the honey-do list that we forget to spend time with the honey, as one of my pastor friends said. Lord, we need to spend time with you, the one who loves us so much and gather strength and courage to do the things that you've called us to do in these last days. And so thank you that we are complete in you. And indeed, Lord, may our lives be transformed and show that we have been with you and that we are in you and that the gospel and that the Bible changes people's lives. Give us changed lives today, we pray. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.